goal of Data Transformers podcast is to accelerate digital transformation by bridging the gap between business outcomes and rapidly advancing technologies. And we aim to bridge this gap by focusing on data. I am Peggy Sai, top 50 women in tech influencer, co-author of the AI book and data governance expert. I'm Ramesh Danta, an entrepreneur, a tech blogger, and AI enthusiast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the podcast. I'm very excited to have with me Dean Ian Williamson. He's the Dean of Paul Merad School of Business at UC Irvine, University of California at Irvine. So Dean Williamson, welcome. Ramesh, thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you today. Thank you, thank you. So without uh, really wasting uh, much of everybody else's time, I really want to get started with you with your uh, latest uh, the career change that uh, you, know, you made on January 1st, 2021, when you took uh, your current position as the Dean of Paul Murat School of Business. So I'm sure you've gone through a lot of um, you know, thinking as to where you want to take the school to from where it is. So maybe why don't we start with your vision for the school going forward? Well, I'm very fortunate in that I took over a great school. So I'm standing on the shoulders of giants for certain. But even with that, I think there's some great work for us to be doing going forward. And really, I want the school to focus on two, two very key and two very important priorities. One, we are a business school that is really built around technology. And so my goal is that we become a world leading, and we are in many respects, but we continue to be a world, lead, a world leading institution in developing leaders. Uh, who are able to bring together business and commercial skills, entrepreneurship skills, and technology skills to create economic and social well-being for society. So it's that combination of those three areas with the focus on those two important outcomes that will be a driving priority for how we teach, the type of content that we do, but also the research that we perform. So that's one big area. The second big area is really building upon what is a core component of the University of California, Irvine, which is inclusive excellence. And by that, you know, for us as a business school, what that means is how can we change the landscape of the business community such that a greater representation of individuals from all communities are able to successfully engage in business and entrepreneurial behavior. And so we know in society there's huge inequities around the types of experiences and opportunities that individuals have. We want to make sure that as we're developing these world-class leaders around this issue of technology, that we're doing that, what we're bringing to bear and allowing a wide range of communities to really be represented and thrive in these different areas. So those are the two big priorities for us as a business school. Hmm. So, so social, in, I mean, in inclusion, and then of course, uh, the two lofty goals, the technology, mm -hmm. entrepreneurial, and then the business skill, schools, uh, you know, the skills into uh, the workforce, uh, but at the same time uh, with an inclusive, uh, you know, uh, mindset to it. Right, so the outcomes we talked about, uh, not just to organizational, but also uh, you know, social as well, society as well. So one of the things that you touched upon, I would I would like to you know go a little bit deep is um, the social inclusiveness, right? So if you take it, uh, given that uh, you know some of the podcasts that we do is more about the technology organizations, so we hear hear a lot about the the diversity gap um, so it's not just a racial ethnic or a gender diversity uh, one of our guests told us it's a neurodiversity right so ability to bring different perspectives uh, into organization uh, as we lead in, into the next century 
And I know from your past research, you are big into this concept called a talent pipeline. So yeah. if you could, before I go deep into that, if you could lay the ground for us, what is a talent pipeline and why was it important for your research? Well, I think the pipeline metaphor is a very effective way to think about how organizations work. And when I work with companies and I've worked now with, oh man, numerous companies across 25 different countries and six different continents around how they develop effective workforces. And in essence, when you see a company that's struggling, mm -hmm. it's usually because either A, they can't get a, a people to apply mm -hmm. or they get people, but they can't develop them. Or maybe they have people, but they can't utilize them or they have really good people, but they can't retain them. And so it's usually one of those four areas that really causes a problem in the talent that your organization has. And I kind of think about it, if you think of it as a pipeline, problems in any of those four areas to me represent leaks. I see. So then how do we as you know, practitioners, as scholars, help organizations have resilient pipelines with no leaks so they're able to kind of get individuals through that flow, which allows them to generate value for organizations and ultimately for themselves as person as, and individually. So initially in my career, most of my work was thinking about that for organizations. But then, you know, maybe about, I would say, 10, 10 12 years ago, I was doing some work and really began to appreciate that no matter how strong an organization's HR practices might be, the biggest constraint is actually the talent pipeline of the community. Okay. And if you look at communities that are struggling or having difficulty, in fact, they have the same issue. Those communities have a hard time attracting talented people to come live there. The people who are there oftentimes are underdeveloped. And we might think about that as low levels of education or access to education. The individuals that are educated are oftentimes underutilized. We can think about that as unemployment or underemployment. And then the individuals who are skilled and have talent, oftentimes those are the individuals who are trying to leave. And so the community cannot retain them. Mm -hmm. So I began to begin to see if, if we're really trying to have robust and strong talent pipelines and companies, we ultimately have to have robust and strong talent pipelines and communities because all companies are embedded within the community that they serve. And so then that means, how do we create interventions to deal with those leaks, to deal with those challenges? And oftentimes what we're talking about are really very clear systematic social issues that exist in society and how now it is really critical for organizations, particularly businesses, to make it their part of their concern about addressing those issues. Okay, so then, um... Um, the, there are systemic issues that you're pointing it out that organizations have a responsibility to address because otherwise their own pipeline gets shortchanged because there's not available pipeline that, uh, you know, that's in the broader community as well. That's right. That's right. right. So I mean, it's, it's uh, so that the pipeline extends beyond the organization into the community. That's what you're saying. It does, definitely. And, and, and the way I think about it, anytime you see a community which is struggling due to a particular social issue, inevitably that same social issue is going to affect whatever organization is trying to do business in that community. And so, you know, I think my perspective and my advice to leaders has been be very strategic and proactive in understanding that this represents a risk to your organization, not too dissimilar to technology risk or new competitors or regulatory risk. And as a result, it requires a plan, a strategic initiative around how to address, mitigate and solve that problem. Okay, so we laid the groundwork here. So, and then we, we said there are multiple stages, the four stages that you mentioned, you know, the, those stages exist in the community as well as in the organizations. So can we talk a little bit about 
what are the practical steps organizations or communities can take? Because the community aspect is much larger, right? So it's a, even take, uh, if you define a community as a city, right? Within a city, the school districts and, um, and then the infrastructure facilities vary from area to area. So, and then they're not, we cannot uh, fix them in, uh, overnight and things like that. But so let's first talk about the organization before we go into community. So what should organizations do to address this, uh, you know, make sure the talent pipeline is robust? I think the first question you ask is how are the various, if you like leaks in the talent pipeline in the community, how are they directly impacting your business? And so what do you look for? Is it shaping who is applying or who is qualified for roles in your organization? Mm -hmm. Is it shaping the capabilities of your clients to actually consume uh, your products? I mean, one of the things to unappreciate, if you have a struggling talent pipeline in the community, you, you probably have a diminished client base or perhaps a client base that cannot fully utilize or appreciate your services. Now, I think that's an important question, right? Because that's a very specific answer. It's not just that we have issues with unemployment or issues with low education. It's issues in specific domains that are relevant to your firm. And I'll give you a very specific example. So in my previous uh, role, I was based in New Zealand, working at a university there in Wellington, New Zealand. And we had a very large IT sector. In fact, the IT sector in Wellington, New Zealand is the largest IT sector in that country. Okay. A very big driver of economic development for the region. And one of the problems they were facing was not the lack of clients. The industry, in fact, had a lot of demand. It was actually the supply of talent. And for a wide variety of reasons, one, it being New Zealand, a small population, two, a lack of skill set in the broader population, this was actually acting as a constraint, particularly in specific areas of IT, that were actually causing businesses to find very difficult to grow. Okay. Now, companies themselves in general are not very good at training people relative to other institutions, right? If, if given the choice, they'd rather spend that money on R&D or marketing or other Correct. things. And so what they were able to do is very, form a very specific partnership with the local community colleges, with the university and the government agencies to develop bespoke master's programs targeted towards working professionals who currently do not have an IT background. Hmm. And in essence, what they were doing is shifting the composition of the existing workforce from a set that didn't have skills in this area to a set that had specific skills that were industry ready. And this type of intervention, you know, they provided some funding, government provided funding, the university provided funding, because all these parties benefited tremendously from this activity. So you've got a new pool of talent that all of the industry partners would then actually get access to. And that raises, if you like, the tide for all boats. Hmm. So that's very interesting, Sudin. Um... I am, so in, if you look at it, right, so some organizations have done a better job of filling the talent pipeline and other organizations have not for various reasons. It could be profitability, it's a, their growth itself is struggling, so their focus is on something else. So as a result, there is this concept of a divide, uh, you call it digital divide in the digital transforma transformation area, or it could be divide between the organizations who, ha uh, who have the luxury of investing in those things and making sure the talent pipeline is there and the organizations, they are unable to do it. So is, is, does that give rise to another level of uh, inequality between the haves and have nots where the haves can acquire, build the pipeline and acquire the best talent, others are unable to do it. 
Well, I think one of the big discrepancies you oftentimes see is large versus small or resource rich versus resource poor organizations. And some of my work has actually looked at specifically how can small new firms compete with large big firms for talent. Mm-hmm. And so there's a and it's interesting there because one of the perspectives is that the smaller firms are disadvantaged in many cases because they don't have the same internal labor markets, they don't have the ability to pay as much, um, and so they're not able to attract the talent or make the same type of investments. Correct. What I've noticed is that while we oftentimes talk about the liability of smallness, we shouldn't underestimate the liability of age or the liability of size, because these smaller organizations can be far more nimble and far more specific in the partnership models they form to actually get access to talent and also the way in which they utilize talent. What we see is more and more individuals want more flexibility, they want more breath in their roles, and this actually means a very attractive proposition for many employees. So yes, there are some disadvantages and liabilities of smallness, but the work that I've done has really shown how those firms that are savvy can use their, their benefits of size, the flexibility it generates, to, if you like, flank the larger firms and provide very unique employment opportunities. Hmm. So actually, that's very interesting. Um, so there are ways beyond just uh, you know, the salary and je- je- the brand name itself. What you're saying is uh, there are other attributes of the work or you know, people uh, being proud of the work, uh, you know, the, the breadth of the work maybe, uh, the other elements of flexibility, uh, more uh, uh, community kind of a things. Those are the things also could play a role, the levers the organizations or smaller organizations should focus on. So I don't want to you know, paint a picture that suggests that the amount of money that an organization can pay an employee is irrelevant. It certainly mm-hmm. is an important component of any employment relationship, and it's a big driver of attraction and retention, but it is not the biggest driver. And that's, that's the misconception. That in fact, as, as, as human beings, we're actually very calculated. Like when we come to work, we come to work to meet multiple things, multiple needs. Money or the extrinsic is one of them. But the intrinsic, the attributes of the job, the enjoyment from the task is actually really critical. And the social, the, the, the enjoyment and the reward we get from the social interaction, whether it be with our employees, whether it be with our boss, whether it be with our clients, that's actually extraordinarily critical. And what we find is that the calculation that we perform is quite precise. We engage in compensatory behavior such that if the salary is slightly lower, but the intrinsic rewards or the social rewards are higher, that actually is a good package for individuals. And you can see, and I've done research on this, where you can actually see how people are very calculated to the dollar as to how much they would value a job that gives them more flexibility, more variety, more training, more exposure, uh, more access to relationships that they find valuable, they can actually value that in terms of how they're thinking about which job offers they, they prefer or what they, they, what they seek. So the thing becomes as an organization, how do you identify what you can provide and how do you promote that effectively? One other point I'll make is that no organization is in the business to be able to hire everyone. Mm-hmm. So it is actually not the case that you want all employees, regardless of whether that they're skilled, to be attracted to work in your organization. You want the ones that have a particular capability and fit a particular need. So you know, this is where haunting your employee, your employee value proposition and being very clear around that pays big dividends, not just in recruitment, but also in retention. Okay. So actually, I, I want to um, connect this concept to something that you and I discussed in a, in a prior discussion, which is that 
So you told me that the Murad School of Business or maybe UCI as a whole, the freshman class is, I think almost 50% or 60% is the first generation of you know, uh, people who are attending a college. Okay, and UC Irvine is definitely one of the top schools and they want to get to the rankings wise, of course, they want to compete with everybody else, but the university has been able to really, you know, uh, get that metric of, you know, a significantly higher portion of the people are attending college for the first time without compromising in anything. Right, uh, whether it's uh, in a quality or on all those things. So essentially, you've extended the talent pipeline concept that I know you've not been there for long. It's, it's there. So I, I connect that to a talent pipeline. Somehow, university has been able to do it. I mean, what have you observed that the, this particular university has done to be able to accomplish that? Well, I, just to give you a sense of the, the magnitude of what you're describing. So this past year, we would have received over 111,000 applications for our freshman class. So we've been mm -hmm. one of the largest uh, pools of applicants we've seen in the, in the country, really. And you know, last year's class, 50% of the graduates were the first in their family to get a college degree. And so what you're picking up on is, why do we think that is an anomaly? Because oftentimes the way we're thinking about talent or the selection criteria we're using are actually not tied to the capability of the people to do the role, mm -hmm. or in this case, perform in high school, perform in college, but they're also oftentimes tied to other social economic issues that are actually not related to performance in this setting, but they act as barriers or they act as deterrents for individuals to come into the university system. Uh, this is one of the reasons why you saw the University of California system move away from standardized tests. So we no longer require the ACT or SAT because what we were finding is that those tests were actually the performance in those was more heavily correlated with the social economic status of individuals than their capability to perform well in a university setting. And so really thinking clearly about the metrics you're using to evaluate individuals that are coming into your organization is showing that they're linked to the performance that they need to do in the organization and not necessarily linked to other artificial constraints. That's a big part of it. But then I think the second component around this is making sure that the people in your organization can thrive. And so certainly we would know in our context that the students that are coming that are first generation, uh, first in family to get um, a degree, they're not going to have the same socialization processes going on in their families. They won't have the same understanding of what to do in a university setting. Certainly, this is going to be a much more foreign environment for them. So mm -hmm. what are the interventions, the development activities you're willing to put for them to ensure their success? And this is where, you know, this concept of inclusive excellence, it's not just about having individuals who are smart and have capability. We understand that Performance in any setting, whether it be a company or a university, is also about understanding the environment and how to behave and how to perform and how to ask for help or understanding what the expectations are. And when you bring in people from different backgrounds than what you typically had, you have to, you can't assume they'll naturally pick that up. And we've been very successful in having some interventions that we've put in place targeted those, those populations to support them in this understanding of how to thrive in this environment. How to, and also listen, we have to change our environment. Yeah. We have to create an environment that is designed for them to thrive. I think this has been the secret to the success here. And certainly, you know, we, we've had more low income, we have more lower income students who have thrived and graduated this, this year right now with our university than all, the public, than all the Ivy League schools combined. And so it really speaks to, there's a lot of talent out there, 
but it's oftentimes missed because of the way we select that talent and then the type of support processes we put in place to ensure their success. It's actually, yeah, makes uh, one to be proud of such a, an institution, definitely just talking about that one, right? And um, uh, the other point that you're mentioning is not just that you are able to get 50% of the class, you know, but making the environment so that the 50% or whatever are successful in the next four years and beyond. And beyond, right? yes. Right? And then it's just not them, okay, we, oh, we got 50% of the class, but how can you make them successful? How will they graduate? How can they graduate and uh, with all the knowledge and skills and then also have a foundation for future success uh, as well. I mean, that's also, it's important. I mean, our university, and, and this is certainly one of the things that attracted me to the university. And, and I actually think um, this is one of the things that universities need to seriously put focus on and have as a priority is this issue of education as a means of mobility. And, you know, oftentimes what we find in many institutions is the institution itself is replicating or creating barriers for mobilities for families or individuals in their life because it's reinforcing some existing statuses that we already have. Well, one of the things that's beautiful about education is it really is about unlocking the potential of individuals and their specific talents. Yeah. And I think what we've been able to see is that by having a slightly different approach to how we, appro how we address bringing people in and supporting them, then we're actually able to be an engine of mobility, which, you know, going back to this talent pipeline issue, this is how we generate a broader pool of people that are going to help drive economic and social well-being, not just in our community here in Orange County, uh, but you know across Southern California more broadly. More broadly, and, and then um, so I agree with one hundred percent about the education is one of the greatest levels of mobility, mm -hmm. and the entrepreneurship is another one which uh, Paul Murrah School definitely focuses. Focuses, and the third element that I've noticed in uh, Paul Murrah School Charter as well, everywhere I see this digital concept, right? So you have a center for digital transformation and digital is embodied in the, you know, not just in title, but everything that you, you guys do. So if you could, uh, could talk a little bit about the digital transformation that has taken place, everybody agrees that COVID has completely advanced the digital transformation by multiple years, three to five years for what happened. So what does the digital mean to you and where do you want to take it forward? I think, I would view this is a story about innovation. And you know, this is the latest form of innovation that our society is dealing with. Mm -hmm. This is not the first of other periods and other eras, but this is the one we're dealing with now. And if you think about innovation, I view that as a two-step process. There's invention, which is sort of the creation of this novel idea. Maybe it's a patent, a, a license, or it's some type of intellectual property. Oftentimes in, the, in a digital space, we think about what's going on in computer science or in engineering or perhaps even in health. Yeah. But that's invention. The other component of innovation is harnessing. How do we take this idea, this product, this service and deliver it in a consistent manner so that it actually has consistent economic and social benefit for a community? That's not just the merit of the idea. That has to require you know, organization and that requires funding and that requires delivery. Those are all the skill sets that you learn in a business school. Yeah. And so what we've tried to position ourselves as is the business school that thinks about how do leaders best harness the potential of technology. And so to do that, that means we look at all of our areas of activity, whether it be the, the, the marketing of a product, the delivery of a product, the, the management of a workforce, the financing of an idea. What is the role that technology plays in, in actually delivering that 
either more effectively, uh, in a more robust manner, more customized way. And so through each of our classes in our curriculum, we look at each of the classes and we say where and how should various forms of technology be integrated into this as tools that individuals can use to harness potential. And, and that's the, I think the unique or at least the de defining component about how we think education should be done today. Okay, so it's not just the delivery piece of it. It's not just like understanding what is artificial intelligence, just to say something, but you know what elements of it can be used and should be used in a business. You know, it's a decision making, and is it relevant to you? So essentially, integrating into the other aspects of business or entrepreneurship, but not as a separate by itself. That's what you're saying. So my area would be human resource management, just to give you an example. Mm -hmm. and and, and a course that I would teach, I would want to focus on what are the ways in which organizations can best attract and select talent. Yeah. Now, to teach that, uh, I can talk about the, the way you think about you know, certain skills and how that matches a job. We can go through that. But the more appropriate way to teach that today is to say, what are the types of data points or how would you design the appropriate algorithms in artificial intelligence? to ensure that your organization is systematically attracting the best talent without bias, without bias. and doing it in a manner that's at a cost, uh, you know, a relatively effective cost price. So we, we embed artificial intelligence or machine learning as the component or the tool by which we address the problem. And you know, don't, don't teach selection and then talk about the role of artificial intelligence. No, it's, it is artificial intelligence. That's, this is the tool we'll use, and this is how we harness the innovation in organizations. Excellent. So, so Dean, uh, one other topic, uh, we talked about digital and technology to some extent, we talked about education, and then the third element, the entrepreneurship, which I alluded to earlier. And uh, so UCI, the Beale Center of Innovation is, uh, you know, with a specific fo focus on entrepreneurship. And uh, from what I understand, it uh, is a closely associated or maybe part of a Palmyra School of Business. So if you could talk about entrepreneurship and uh, and how it's embedded into the, the business curriculum itself, and then how centers like a Beale Center in a work with uh, Paul Murad School of Business. When my students come to the Paul Murad School of Business, you know, some of them are wanting to go and work in organizations that are existing. Mm -hmm. And we will have a set of pathways and skill sets that are designed for that pathway. Some of the students, whether they know it when they show up or not, are actually gonna come across ideas that's gonna and excite them to create new ventures. And what we wanna be able to do is have an equally robust pathway for those individuals that wanna go down that track for their career. And so out of that, we've created an entrepreneurship minor that is open to all students on campus. Mm -hmm. And in fact, can be done largely online if individuals like to do so. Okay. We've also created a master's in innovation and entrepreneurship, which these two forms of curriculum are all designed to wrap around assistance with individuals to understand how do you identify an opportunity, develop a mechanism or a solution to that opportunity, create a organizing principle around it so that you can create a venture, identify financing for that venture, launch that venture, market this novel product to an audience, and then think about how you scale it. And so having, you know, it's a very different type of curriculum and a path within a firm of individuals that want to go work for a large pre-existing firm. And so we're really mindful, if you like, of being uh, equally strong on both sides of the house. And of course, what you see, of course, is over the course of someone's career, many of our students will end up doing both. And so having that as an approach or a pathway for individuals, I think, is, is quite important. 
And, and that's something we really have uh, put a lot of emphasis on through our Bill Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation, uh, as well as through our curriculum. And I should note that one of the more successful things we do is we run a new venture competition that's open to the entire campus. We get hundreds of individuals involved in this. Yep. And it really becomes a nice, if you like, testing ground for individuals to trial these ideas out. Because I think entrepreneurship, more so than anything else, is also a behavior. And so to teach a behavior, you have to actually have people getting the experience of doing it. You learn by doing it in some of these cases. And, and our new, new venture competition, along with other programs, really gives individuals that experiential support so that they have a skill they can walk away with. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I'm familiar with uh, the venture competition, so I'm mentoring some uh, teams out there. So, as part of this, if you look at it, right? So, one of the task force that you and I connected as well is uh, inclusive and uh, the the task force. When I look at it, all the spectrums, Dean, uh, whether it's entrepreneurship, whether it's access to education, uh, whether it's uh, you know the career progress uh, within you know whatever the individual wants to do. There is definitely um, the challenges with respect to diversity, right? Or in terms of whether it's a gender, so women in uh, the senior executive position. So there are research all out there that it's not representative of uh, of the percentage of women graduate who graduate from colleges with respect to the percentage of women executives, right? So um, it is there in technology industries. It's it's there in the broad industry as well. Okay, so um, what? based on your research and based on the observation that uh, you made, in what are the specific steps that can be taken for advancement of women or, or advancement of minorities? Um, and it's not necessarily just like, okay, we got to get X percentage of people in, in this kind of thing, but more uh, uh, you know, to the, to, that contributes to the growth of the organization's kind of thing. So what are the practical steps that, um, that you, you think uh, should be taken based uh, what you have seen are successful and what you have seen are not successful, where things are failing? Well, I think one of the things that individuals have focused on initially in this space is this notion of representation. So there's been a push to get more people, say more women, more people of color into these spaces. And yeah. I understand that, but I'll share some findings from some research I did several years ago, looking at the role, the experiences of women in the IT workforce. And what we found was that in many cases and oftentimes normally, the women would perform better in university in these IT programs than the men. And that's, that's consistent pretty much across all university curriculum. Women tend to have higher grades. And so you had these women who would have graduated from a top tier university with the IT related degree. Mm -hmm. They would go into the IT field and we tracked these women over time. What we found was that they would tend to drop out of the career at a much higher rate than men, despite the fact that technically speaking, by at least by their grades, they were more qualified. Hmm. And we were really curious as to what was going on here. And what we were finding is that while there was an initial attempt to have greater representation, the environment that they were coming into simply was not supporting them. And specifically what we found was they tended to lack the mentoring and the professional development activities that the men were receiving. And this became quite discouraging and also generated lower levels of performance for them in the same job, despite the fact that they had the same, if not higher levels of skill. Yeah. And so this was an important finding for me because what it pointed out to was that participation or representation is not enough. You have to create a broader pipeline of talent that's going into the sector, but you also have to systematically change the ecosystem of the sector. 
if you really want to get traction here. Yeah. And so let me give it, let me take that data and maybe extrapolate a little bit. So if we look at what we see right now in the technology companies, yeah. uh, there's a big push to get more people of color, more women to focus on things like STEM and in business, which I think is great. And I think yeah. that's almost necessary, but I certainly think it's sufficient because if I look at the sector, what you see is a very low representation of say uh, black or Latinx entrepreneurs in technology or women yeah. entrepreneurs in technology. The firms that are founded by these groups, they tend to get very, very little venture capital funding. And so their ability to grow and to thrive is very limited. So for example, in California, which is the state that generates the largest amount of venture capital of any state in America, mm -hmm. less than 3% of that venture capital money goes to technology firms that are actually founded by Latinx or Black founders, right? And you know, if you think about that, that's quite amazing because the Latinx population in and of itself would represent almost 14% of the population of California. Correct. And so we're, we're, we're really seeing a huge discrepancy. And then if you look at the, the board of directors of the technology firms, both large and small, what you'll find is very, very low representation of women right. or people of color. And so think about the, the, so let's say I do a good job and I get a very diverse cohort of students that come into the Palmer Rock School. They study in around the area of technology. They're excited about this domain. They go out into the workplace. They're not gonna be able to go to companies that are founded by people from their communities. The companies they go to that are founded by the people from their communities are underfunded. The companies they go to that are you know, other companies are likely to have less representation, not just in the workforce, but in the senior leadership level, as well as in the directorship level. Kind of. They are likely to not, you know, you're asking them now to do two big tasks. One, do a very difficult job and do it in an environment that's very dissimilar and perhaps not very supportive of your background. Correct. And, and what I tell people all the time is to be successful, you need to be extraordinarily resilient, period. But you should never create an environment where you have one employee having to be more resilient than another. Yeah. That's not the goal. And so this is why it's important for us as a business school to not just shape the pipeline of talent going through our educational process, but to also be very clear about how we shape the ecosystem they are going into. We have to, if you like, fertilize the soil to make sure when those seeds land, they're actually, they're able to grow. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you liked what you heard today and would like to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite player like iTunes and Spotify. And please do rate our podcast. Also, please go to our website, www.datatransformerspodcast.com for more episodes, blogs, and information on our speakers. Thank you.